Hello and welcome to The Wire, your national and independent coverage of current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan, coming to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. And today on the show... Classrooms are now dominated by digital learning environments, and so the ability to utilise and have access to online resources and technology has really become an essential part of students' learning. Concerns around digital exclusion sparks calls for the introduction of a national device bank. For the health system... Over 12.7 billion was allocated to cardiovascular disease in Australia in 2019 to 20. This February, we'll see the launch of RedFeb across Australia, raising awareness about heart health. And later today... People don't want to acknowledge that they are mind-wandering. So oftentimes, when as a university educator, I ask my students, do you mind-wander? And students don't want to admit it or they're in a denial about it. Do you find your mind sometimes wanders off at work, uni, maybe even mid-conversation. Well, psychology researchers say you're not alone. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. We're on air across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today... Women are 70% less likely than men to receive life-saving emergency defibrillation in a public setting, according to a new study exposing gender inequality in emergency care. The research suggests exposing a woman's torso and breasts in public could actually dissuade a bystander from performing life-saving emergency care. National Radio News reporter Georgia Fisher asked Director of Research and Evaluation at Ambulance Victoria, Ziad Neme, why bystanders hesitate when performing CPR on women. Well, actually, um, uh, Georgia, one of the findings that we got out of the study was that um, men and women were both as likely to receive bystander CPR. But the key difference here is actually that we found that women uh, who suffered a cardiac arrest were significantly less likely to have an AED applied to their chest. We think this might be for a couple of different reasons, but one of the things that uh, really keeps us up at night, I guess, is that we think the community might be more concerned about exposing a woman or exposing removing the, the clothing from a woman and, and applying an AED to their chest because of concerns that they may expose their torso to the community during that process. And so one of the messages we want to very strongly say to the community is that in order to overcome some of those challenges, we all need to be prepared to remove clothing, both for men and women, and know how to apply an AED in these medical emergency situations. So from the study, in sort of those key findings, I know you just said that the CPR rates are more equal. Has that been an increase over the years, or are we seeing a decrease in AED as well? Yeah, that's right. So actually what we've seen over the study over the last two decades in Victoria is that bystander CPR has actually improved or increased fourfold over that period of time, which is a really remarkable increase. And for both men and women, we're seeing about 70% of all cardiac arrest patients receiving some form of bystander CPR before the arrival of paramedics, which is a, a, a really important intervention to see. We know that it buys us time and it buys us enough time to be able to then restart the heart using an AED. But the critical factor is that bystander CPR really only buys you time and it buys you enough time to be able to apply an AED and defibrillate the heart back to a normal rhythm. 
And unfortunately, although we've seen increases in bystander, uh, bystander defibrillation use in the community, the application of an AED, women were about 60 to 70% less likely to receive an AED than men. How can we change this and inform Australians on um, using an AED on women regardless of um, gender and, and kind of what should bystanders do in an emergency situation if they need to perform it on a woman? Yeah, look, this is really challenging and, you know, I think for health professionals, cardiac arrest is often described as, you know, the ultimate medical emergency. We have about three to five minutes after a person collapses from cardiac arrest to save their life. We know that that's the window of opportunity where things such as CPR and defibrillation are most effective. So we really need the community to step up and actually perform those interventions. And often dialing triple zero can be the single most important thing that you can do because the triple zero call taker will help you and guide you through that process, will help you and guide you in terms of providing you with uh, instructions to provide CPR and also help you uh, locate the closest AED. The other thing that you can do is that if you know of an AED that is in the vicinity of the cardiac arrest is to retrieve it and put that on the patient's um, chest. The AED acts almost as a coach, so it gives you um, audible prompts and tells you when CPR should be performed and when it shouldn't be performed. And most importantly, an AED will never hurt anybody. It won't administer a shock unless the person requires a shock, so it can never harm anyone. There are a number of very significant challenges, I think, that we have in trying to address the gap between uh, men and women in the application of an AED. And I think probably one of the most important ones is that almost all training courses will use a male torso as a mannequin when we practice CPR and AED use. And there's been quite a lot of discussion over the last week with the release of these results across social media that there's really an opportunity for us uh, to be able to change that. That seems to be an easy fix. The other significant issue that we have is to get the right person to the scene that we know that many members of the community won't be prepared to deal with a, a cardiac arrest scenario. And one of the initiatives that we have at Ambulance Victoria is our Good Sam app. It's also about to launch in New South Wales. And that actually allows people who are trained or prepared to provide CPR to be notified through their mobile phone that there's a cardiac arrest in their vicinity and that they should attend or render some assistance and we think that that is critically important in getting people who know how to respond to cardiac arrest to these victims during that time. I think there's a lot of work to do on the international scale from peak bodies that are responsible for setting out resuscitation guidelines and advice. That was Ziad Neme from Ambulance Victoria speaking with National Radio News' Georgia Fisher. Across Australia, you're listening to The Wire, Community Radio's National Current Affairs Program. Digital exclusion continues to be a growing concern for Australian school students. With a recent study finding one in two lower income families say their children could miss out on the devices needed for school because they're unable to afford them. The report done by KPMG on behalf of not-for-profit organisation WorkVentures indicates a substantial challenge for students without computer access, with 84% facing difficulties in completing classwork and assignments. 
to learn more, I spoke to WorkVentures CEO Caroline McDade. So, look, digital exclusion in Australia really refers to the ability for someone to participate in the digital economy. So it's essential these days um, in order to find and maintain work, participate in education, access online government and health services and find reliable information. As of the last um, Australian Digital Inclusion Report, around one in four Australians are digitally excluded. The focus that we're looking at today is really on students um, with the students returning back to school, particularly students in lower socioeconomic schools, um, are finding that the um, lack of access to digital devices or connectivity and skills is really holding them back um, when it comes to achieving educational outcomes. And why is access to technology and having digital access, why is that so important? With the pandemic, um, you know, obviously we were thrust into an era of accelerated digital transformation as students had to um, access remote learning, um, devices became increasingly important. Um, but what that's meant is that since the pandemic, um, the classrooms are now dominated by digital learning environments. And so the ability to utilise and have access to online resources and technologies really become an essential part of students' learning. Um, so what we're finding is that by not having access to um, laptops, which is really primarily the, the device that students need to be able to complete homework and assignments out of school, you know, today it's the equivalent of not having access to paper and pen and calculators you know, several decades ago. It means that students are not able to keep up with um, the educational curriculum. And that really came through in the report that we um, had completed recently um, by KPMG, who completed that pro bono on behalf of us, and we really saw the impact on those students who didn't have access to devices. Um, and by providing them with devices, we really then saw the positive impact that um, students had uh, thereafter. What are the ramifications or consequences if this digital exclusion continues on a young person's future or even just their education overall? It's a very basic uh, a basic function of education, being able to complete your homework and assignments. And so if you don't have access to that, um, obviously you can see the, the implications on those students being that they would increasingly fall behind. Um, the latest uh, government data from um, NAPLAN showed us that about uh, 44% of two and five year six students and about a quarter of year 10 students don't have access to a computer outside of school. Um, so it is, it's not an insignificant problem when you think of that extrapolated across the entire country. Um, it just really puts children at risk of falling behind academically, but also really grappling with social impacts and the limitations of their future employment opportunities. The implications on ongoing employment um, as well as, you know, you know, the impact of having poorer educational outcomes it just means that the gap is going to continue widening. Is it more prevalent in different communities or maybe more rural locations geographically? Um, I can imagine mar- marginalised groups like First Nations communities would also be more adversely affected. But uh, the Digital Inclusion Index absolutely showed, you know, the lowest socioeconomic quintile um, went backwards and has the largest, um, you know, uh, level of exclusion and you're right the First Nations communities particularly those in regional and remote communities so there's definitely segments of um, society that are feeling the pinch more than others um, and as you can imagine it's, it's 
it's both a symptom um, and an exacerbator of, of, mm-hmm. of disadvantage. So you've got the people who are most disadvantaged already um, being negatively impacted and, and potentially widening that gap. Overall, in terms of the issue at large, what what can be done or what is your organisation suggesting for bridge, yeah, bridging so this gap? What we're finding at the moment is specific to school students, support for families is really inconsistent. So even within states, you know, one school might provide kids with a device outside of school, others won't. What we are calling for is the introduction of what we're calling a national device bank. Um, so this is, I, I guess, a new piece of social infrastructure which would be um, there to provide uh, devices to those who really need it for free, you know, pr- along with the, the relevant digital support and technology support that they need um, to really help bridge that digital divide. And logistically, how would that look? So what, what WorkVentures does is we actually work in partnership with not-for-profits and corporates and the government sector. And so we collect devices, we refurbish them, so we wipe them to remove any data, and then we refurbish them and we, um, we place those with people who need them most. And so the proposal around the National Device Bank is that we really scale this this program up um, to meet the scale of the demand. CEO of Work Ventures, Caroline McDade there, closing that report. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan in Brisbane. A big hello to our friends in Alice Springs on 8CCC 102.1 FM, to our listeners in Hobart on Edge Radio and to the other side of the country, to Radio Galari in Broome, Western Australia. This February, we'll see the launch of RedFeb across Australia, raising awareness about heart health. Heart disease affects two in three Australians and from 2019 to 2020 cost the Australian healthcare system $12.7 billion. Heart Research Australia says we can take care of our hearts without breaking the bank, having released a free resource with accessible information about the heart. To learn more about RedFeb, The Wire's Eduardo Jordan spoke with Nikki Dent, CEO of Heart Research Australia, and Stephanie Alexander, a dental nurse recently diagnosed with heart disease. I'm Nikki Dent and I'm the CEO of Heart Research Australia. I'm Stephanie Alexander um, and I work as a dental nurse. Well, first of all, Nikki, could you please tell us a little bit more about uh, RedFeb and its importance to raise awareness about healthy hearts? Look, heart disease sadly affects two in every three people and it's the leading cause of death in Australia. And Heart Research Australia funds groundbreaking research into the prevention, diagnosis and treatment of heart disease. So Red Feb is a month dedicated to raising funds for heart research and raising awareness for heart health. And as part of this, we invite everybody to wear red and raise money for someone close to your heart who has been impacted by heart disease. So Nikki, how critical is heart health and how much is costing us not to take care of our hearts? 
Yeah, so heart health obviously is critical. It, it's the pump that makes us who we are. So really important. And obviously with that leading cause of death, it's really important for us all to look after our heart health. And the cost implications for us as individuals is high. I mean, if, if you have a heart attack, it can include medical costs, mm. lost wages, and also, you can get depression after if you've had a heart attack or not be able to work at the same capacity that you had before. And then for the health system, over 12.7 billion was allocated to cardiovascular disease in Australia in 2019 to 20. And that represents just over 9% of the overall health expenditure. So, um, prevention is key and there's a lot that we can do to help our own hip pocket. Now, Steph, you were diagnosed with heart disease at the young age of 25. That's very young. Could you please tell us a little bit more about your journey to this diagnosis? Yes, yeah, so um, very, it was very young and a shock when it did come, but leading up to it for around about 12 months leading up to my diagnosis, I'd been just getting a bit unwell. So it was catching flus here and there. I'd had a couple of ear infections, chest infections. And the last thing that ended up being was my bronchitis as well. So this was on and off for around 12 months. But at the same time, I was planning a wedding. (laughs) And so I kind of put everything down to stress, I thought. And before that, I'd always been fairly healthy, never had much wrong with me. So I had to, so all that had been happening. um, And then they had been in sort of maybe the last 18 months as well before my diagnosis. I had been to emergency twice. They did all their checks there that they do in emergency, sent me home and they were like follow up with a GP, which I was a bit neglectful in regards to that. So, but then I went to a new GP and With me being a new patient, he was very thorough with his checks. So he gave me a full new patient check and asked me about previous histories, family history, and just unlucky for me, my the GP that I went to see was actually had a cardiac history in his career. And I went for an echocardiogram, so an ultrasound of my heart. Um, And that is where it came up that I had my diagnosis of dilated cardiomyopathy. Nick, one of the triggers or issues affecting our heart is stress. What can we do to reduce stress so our hearts keep healthy? There's some affordable things that we can do uh, to keep heart healthy. Obviously, that's um, eating healthy foods, incorporating things like beans and lentils, whole grains and vegetables, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will do that. And as you say, managing stress is really important because that can lead to heart disease or or impacts around that. So having techniques such as deep breathing, meditation or yoga and and also spending time in nature or with loved ones and, and friends. The Medicare covers health checkups from people of your age 30 and plus. And could you please tell us a little bit more about what the Heart Hub is? Look, the Heart Hub is a free resource um, that's available at heartresearch.com.au and that provides uh, expert advice on different risk factors, how to optimize your diet and some exercise routines to, and, and ways to reduce stress. And Steph, finally, uh, what would you like to tell uh, to our audience about taking care of, of their hearts? There's the obvious things like, you know, 
keep in active whatever you find you know enjoyable to to keep active reducing your red meat intake is a really big thing as well to try and keep your heart as healthy as possible if you feel something is wrong go get it checked Stephanie Alexander there, ending that report by The Wire's Eduardo Jordan. Research suggests nearly half of humans' active consciousness is spent mind-wandering. These statistics consistent throughout all cultures globally. According to psychology researchers, there are both benefits and risks when our minds wander. The Wire's Tony Pankalewick spoke with Dr. Anshu Garg from Bond University. When it comes to the prevalence of mind wandering, it varies from like 25 to 50 percent. And when it comes to the flirtation of it, it depends on a lot of factors. For example, how complex the task is or how interested you are in doing something or about your environment or physical factors, for example, hunger or sleep. So, for instance, studies have shown that people who are sleep deprived or are hungry are more likely to mind wander or people are more likely to mind wander when they are doing a task that doesn't interest them. Yeah, so is it the same as daydreaming? When it comes to daydreaming and mind-wandering, so I'll explain these concepts with two examples. Mind-wandering is like somebody is reading a boring book chapter and their mind withdraws from their current environment and from the reading task. So in this case, this is mind-wandering because they are thoughts unrelated to the reading and their environment, whereas daydreaming doesn't have an active task. So for example, somebody sitting on a bus and they start gazing out of the window, thinking about their partner, So that's the difference that in mind wandering, you have an active task, whereas in daydreaming, you don't have an active task. So what are the benefits of mind wandering? Are there any? Yeah, of course, because I think there is often a myth mind wandering is not a good thing. But what studies have shown and what my work focuses on that mind wandering is magical. So there are a lot of benefits. So one of them could be like creativity or somebody having an aha moment. And it doesn't have to be something creative because a lot of times when we say creativity, people think that it's about painting. But it can be as simple as maybe figuring out a recipe and you don't have the ingredients or a university student is doing an assignment and they don't know how to outline their work. So maybe they might benefit of taking a break from that task, maybe going out for a walk and then drifting away and thinking of some ideas. Another benefit would be like relief from boredom. So I think we all have experienced COVID where we were just stuck in our house doing these chores and we didn't have the chance to enjoy or go on a vacation. So mind wandering could really help somebody to mentally retreat from their current scenario. And the third could be future plans because what studies have shown is mind-wandering tends to be very future-oriented. So it could really give an opportunity to reflect and personally plan their future goals. So for example, a university student can plan about what they need to do after their graduation or somebody who's planning their meals that what I need to prepare for tonight. So those are the notable examples of maximizing mind-wandering or is there anything else? Yeah, so I think these are benefits, right? Now, if somebody wants to maximize the benefits, the first thing what I have seen in literature is that people should acknowledge and be aware of their mind wandering because we live in this culture like get a grip where oftentimes people don't want to acknowledge that they are mind wandering. So oftentimes when as a university educator, I ask my students, do you mind wander? And students don't want to admit it or they're in a denial about it. So I think the first thing is to be aware of your thoughts. For example, somebody is reading a book and they start thinking about their another project. And once they catch themselves, they don't take a note of their mind wandering thoughts. 
thoughts. They just come back to their tasks. So my suggestion would be, first of all, take a note of your thoughts. You could also maybe practice meditation or yoga, which makes you aware of your thoughts. And then maybe work towards the context because it is essential that one regulates their mind wandering to a non-demanding task as compared to a demanding task. For example, it will be more beneficial for somebody to maybe mind wander when they are washing their car rather than when they're driving their car. And another thing is the content because it's not just about the quantity, it's also about quality. So what studies have shown is that your content could also play a very important role in your mind wandering. So for example, it would be more beneficial for somebody to think about how they can meet their future deadline as compared to ruminating about their past when they had failed a deadline or they couldn't meet the expectation. Is it more common with people who have ADHD? And I'll also ask, does it worsen with age? Indeed, it is common in ADHD sample. And what studies have also shown is that it is linked with ADHD symptoms, positively such as inattention, impulsivity and hyperactivity. Bond University's Dr. Andrew Garg there, speaking with The Wire's Tony Pankalewick. And unfortunately, that's the end of the show today. Thanks so much for listening, wherever you are in Australia. The Wire has been produced today with the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and the Community Radio Network. You can check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Turbal and Jugara countries on which this program has been produced. And we pay our respects to Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. Today, The Wire came to you from 4ZZZ in Mianjin, Brisbane. I'm Mary-Kate Hannigan. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.